Alright guys, we'll go ahead and get started. If we have a fire, Isaac will be the first out the window. He'll help us out the windows. We've got a fire door here. We should be, we should be good. All right. Um, what you have in your hands right now is uh, one of them is a handout, and I'll explain that later, those, those columns that you have. We'll get into that later. Um, there's another printout that's coming. I printed out 60 copies of this handout probably around 4, 4.30, and I, what I thought happened is I printed out 60 more copies of my actual handout for tonight. But the printer decided to spaz in between those two printings, and so my computer wasn't even sending any kind of signal to the printer. So Debbie is working on that for me right now. So about midway, hopefully not midway, hopefully in about a minute, she'll have those uh, other handouts in here because um, I don't want to lose you. I don't want your whole time to be just taking notes. Uh, I want us to engage. All right. Well, welcome back. Week two. Um, why don't we just begin with a word of prayer, and then we will jump into our equipping class. Father, we're thankful for your mercy. We're thankful for um, just a, another Lord's Day that we can come together, and what a sweet way to spend it um, at the end, just thinking through um, how to be effective servants in your church. <clears throat> And uh, we look to you, you're our king, um, we learned last week that you make all of our discipleship efforts effective and, and fruitful, you have all authority and you've promised to, to stay with us to the end of the age, uh, ensuring that we fulfill um, successfully the discipleship mandate. So we come to you humbly, um, in much need tonight. Uh, we pray for clarity in these things that we're talking about. I pray that our time together will be a tremendous encouragement um, to the saints here tonight who are here because they want to they learn how to disciple better. And so do I. So that's our, that's our goal. And we um, just plead to you now in this moment that you would help us. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So just show of hands, how many of you were not here last week? About half the class. Okay. Um, don't worry, guys, you were here last week. I won't re-preach it. Um, well, this equipping class is called Discipling, um, and it's about how to help others follow Christ. I stole the title from this book called Discipling, How to Help Others Follow Jesus. Um, it's a great book. If you, if you don't have it, I'd encourage you to pick one up or just Pray that you might receive one. I'm trying to give one away every uh, every class period. So we'll try to make this one a little more effective than last time. Who was born in March? That's to tell me your birthday. Okay, we got three. What are your birthdays? Who's closest? What you, what day is today? I should have come more prepared. Twentieth. Who's the closest to the twentieth? Your birthdays. Eighteen. Woo. Eighteen. But not 18 years old. <laughs> 91 years old, but 18. Um. 18. Anybody closer than 18? March 18? Brother Ashton, you get oh, the recycling book this week. Oh, oh, oh. All right. Why, Lord, what did I ever do to deserve 
Hey, I think Ashton could take my job as song leader. I've been looking for a replacement all this time. You've been hiding in the shadows. All right, it looks like our, uh, our, our tactics, our, our delay tactics have succeeded, and we have another handout. So that is good. This is uh, week two. All right, so we're looking at discipling in this equipping class, how to help others follow Christ. And the purpose of the class, for those of you who weren't here, is, uh, you know, as the elders, we, we kind of got together and we wanted to make sure that uh, those, in, those of you in our church are understanding and joyfully embracing the Bible's vision of discipleship. So that was kind of what we dedicated the deluge last week to, is to try to develop that vision of discipleship. So if you're new this week, uh, you can, that message is uh, uploaded online. You can, look, you can look at that and uh, follow along in that outline that you have there. And another purpose that we have is, is we want to be helping you guys identify and overcome the hindrances to being an effective discipler. So the hindrances are, are all, over, all over the place. Our hearts are uh, full of lies and um, discouragements in this process. Satan does not want us to be making disciples. This is the central task of the church. So he's going to throw everything at us to discourage us away from this. So we want to be able to identify what those hindrances are and um, overcome them so that we can grow in our effectiveness as, as disciples. And finally, really the bulk of the class what we're going to begin today is we want to uh, help, help equip you to have a practical roadmap for the discipling process. Meaning we just want to help you kind of get a little more clarity, maybe take another step forward in what a faithful discipler looks like. Um, and how to become one if you're not already. So last week we looked at a biblical vision for discipling, and I gave you guys three key texts to sort of shape that vision. So let's, let's start here. Why is it important that we have a biblical vision for discipleship? What do we mean by that? Not everybody at once. We'll move a lot faster if you just... Roadmap. A roadmap. Okay. Yes, yeah, so I like kind of a high altitude view of what the Bible teaches about discipleship. Okay. Why is that important? It can go wrong. Okay. Yeah, discipleship can go wrong. Yes, it can. Because it's God's work. It's God's work. Yeah. God has given us the task. He's defined the task. He's shown us how the task is carried out, and he's shown and he's told us that each one of us play a vital role in that task. Right? So he defined the task. He's commanded to define it. What text did we look at for that? It was our first one last week. Matthew 28. And what do we find there? The Great Commission, the command to make disciples. And he fleshes that out as, as two additional things. What are they? Baptism, yes, and teaching. So conversion and edification. Meaning we want to bring people to Christ and we want to help them grow in Christ. Right? And what else do we learn in Matthew 28? There's some significant promises there. He has all authority. He has all authority, and he's with us. So why is it important that we know that he has all authority? We know who to look to. We know who to look to. We know who's in control of this process. Nobody's above him, right? Nobody stands in authority above Christ. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. So he, he can ensure, he and only he can ensure that the, the discipling process will be carried out. 
and then he's with us, why do we need to know that? Because we're not doing it on our own. We're not doing it on our own, right. He's equipping us, he's with us, even via his spirit, and his spirit is the one that's opening blind eyes as we preach the truth. He's the one that's convicting the disciples as we grow in the truth. So Christ is with us. He has all authority. He's with us, and he's given us a task. And that just ensures that it's going to be brought to completion, right? So that's the first key text. We've got to have that in our minds. We need to know what that says very clearly if we're going to have a vision of discipleship. What's the next key text? <laughs> the book of Acts. Yes, Acts 2 and following and a number of passages we looked at there. What does Acts show us? How does Acts connect to Matthew 28? Was that? The formation, the, the formation of the church. Yep. It shows us how this discipling mandate is carried out. Yep. And it's carried out in and through the local church. As churches are planted, right? Through the gospel, as gospel proclamation happens. What, else, what happens after they're planted? It starts with an M. They're matured, right. They're matured. They begin to grow up as they're fed the word of God, as they're taught the apostles' doctrine. They grow, and what happens is this church is growing. What's produced? Leadership, yes. Leadership is produced. You see this abundance of leaders, and then what happens out of those leadership, out of those abundance of leaders? New churches. New churches. There's replication. Yes, so there's a corporate dimension to discipleship, and that's really the burden. If you didn't get anything else from last week, that's what I wanted you to walk away with, the corporate dimension, the discipleship. When we hear discipleship and discipling, we immediately think, to the, the individual. And we might think parachurch organizations like Navigators or Liberty, the dorm, and all this kind of thing. But we, we often don't think the local church. And that is God's program for discipleship. All right? Does it make sense? So we've got Matthew 28, the book of Acts. It's our second key text. And what's our third key text? Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. And why is that significant? Talks about the gifts. Yep, talks about the gifts, tells us more about the process. Yeah, you can think of it like this. Ephesians 4 tells us a lot. But Ephesians 4 sort of narrows the focus and says that every single one of us is part of the discipleship process. Every per- Because you have been saved by Jesus, you've been given a gift, at least a gift, Ephesians 4.10, uh, yeah. And God, Christ intends you to use that gift for the building up of the body. And that happens as we speak the truth and love to one another. We could say it happens as we disciple one another. Only problem is, when we come to faith in Christ, we're young, we're immature, we don't know what our gifts are usually, we don't know how to use them, um, we're full of sin, and so Christ begins to equip us through the leadership in the body, through the, through the, um, through the shepherds, pastors and teachers in this body as, we, as they shepherd us through the apostles' doctrine. So the point there, that's a huge text, very important, but the point is that every single one of us has a, has a role in this discipleship process, all right? So that was the message in three minutes. Should have done that last week. Okay. All right, so that was last week, biblical vision, very important to start with. Now, let's segue to really part two of our class, which will carry us through the, the rest of the time. Part two is, is what I'm calling this roadmap, or the, or the, we might call it the practices of an effective discipler. And again, if you weren't here last week, I'll, I'll run through them real quick for you so you kind of where we're going. This week we're going to look at modeling. And we're not talking about runway modeling. All right? We're talking about a discipler who lives a life worth following. 
So when you disciple people, they're looking to you as a model, as an example. And we're going to look at that more in depth in just a moment. We'll also look at the, the, the practice of befriending. So a faithful disciple is proactive. He, he befriends or she befriends others. They lovingly initiate relationships in the body. They don't wait on other people to come to them. They initiate those relationships. And we'll look at, look at how and why that happens. Uh, a faithful discipler, as we saw this morning, prays. So I was joking with Tim earlier. Um, I partially chose that text this morning, so maybe I could skip this week and add another, add another uh, <laughs> practice here. Um, so we'll see what happens there. But that was my plan. I was going to teach uh, 1 John 5 um, that night. But a faithful discipler is one who intercedes uh, for the saints. A faithful discipler, week five, is one who teaches. So he helps others discern lies that they're believing and, and renew their minds, pursue the truth. And then finally, week six, is a faithful discipler is one who perseveres. He endures patiently and facilitates replication in the process. So we'll, we'll look at that later. Just He makes sure that the, the one he's discipling, um, he's patient with that person, and then he makes sure the end goal is that they are also a discipler of other people. So we'll look at that when we get there. But before we jump into these various how-tos like befriending and some of those other things, kind of the process, it's important that we establish a principle up front, and it's... It's this, before we ever seek to lead other people, we must first look at ourselves and the lives that we're living. That's like, that's baseline, that's first. We've got to ask this question, are we living our lives in such a way that it compels other people to follow us? Are we living our lives in such a way that it compels other people to follow us? Or we could say it like this. Do we follow Christ in such a way that others can actually learn from us as we follow Him? And that's all discipling is and discipleship is. Now, why do you think that's a crucial first question? How do we need to start here? So we're making disciples of Christ and not ourselves. Yeah, we're making disciples of him, not ourselves, right? We're sinners. We, we are get caught up in stuff. We are sinners, we get caught up in stuff, that's right. What we say does not contradict what we live and are. Yeah, we want to try to close that gap, right? Of between what we're saying, what we're teaching, there's always going to be a gap. But we want to try to close it between what we say and what we practice so that people aren't confused, yeah. So let me just say this. This is a, a difficult question to ask at first, you know, and it's like, wow, we're starting the deep end. Okay, we're looking at evaluating my life. Is this, you know, am I, am I living a life worth following? It's both convicting and it's incredibly refreshing and simplifying. Because as we, all, all discipling is, is about following Christ better myself and bringing others along behind me in that. It starts with me, but as the Lord grows me, that becomes the, the fruit, that becomes the, the equipping that I need to help other people grow. I like to say it like this, the Lord is incredibly efficient. Okay? He doesn't waste anything in our lives, and he uses it 
The fruit he produces, he uses for others. And so as we learn to follow Christ, that's where the, that's where the yield is going is to come from. So as hard as it is, we've got to ask this question at the outset because a discipler is fundamentally a model to their disciples. We demonstrate in one way or another what the Christian life involves as well as how to live it. So that immediately raises one of the greatest obstacles, obstacles to discipleship. What might that be? Sin. Sin, yeah. But in your heart, as I'm saying... You need to live a life worth following. What happens in your heart when I say that? Tell me, Cody. I see it on your face. I'm just thinking like, yeah, it's just like hypocritical, right? Like I gotta, I gotta be what someone wants to follow, and that's a lot of work on my end. It's a lot of work on our end, and we typically look at ourselves if we're humble and we say, like, I have so far to go. Like, how am I ever gonna possibly have a life that's worth following? Right? Does, does anybody else resonate with that? Yeah. Well, we know our own sin, so it's like we know it personally, and we're like, I don't, I don't, I'm not there, so how can they follow me? Yes. Yes, we all feel that tension. We all feel that. And that raises this, this obstacle that I'm calling fear. Okay, fear. We immediately think, who is worthy of that? Who can survive that kind of pressure? We're fearful of saying something wrong to people and leading them astray. We're fearful of being inadequate ourselves and being a poor model for them. We're aware of our weaknesses. We are just afraid. Which means we've got to battle this right at the outset. We've got to go right at this fear. And there's a lot of ways we could do it, but I want to remind you of your first thing, right? your first principle right there in the introduction. I think this is crucial to remember. We have to keep in mind that influence is inevitable. Influence is inevitable. Let me put it like this. It's not if we influence, but it's how we influence. Does that make sense? It's not if we're going to influence. We are going to influence. It's just how good of an influence are you going to be? So why? how might that motivate you away from fear? and toward faithfulness in this discipling process. You have to disciple yourself. Yep, you have to disciple yourself. You don't get to opt out. You're doing it regardless. Yeah, you're doing it regardless. And you're influencing other people regardless. And so do you want, when Christ returns on that final day, and to evaluate you, you're going to be evaluated one way or the other because you've influenced people one way or the other. I mean, every person with small children knows this intuitively. You know, it's like you're painfully aware of how who you are, the good and the bad, bears influence on other people. And the same thing is true right here in the church. Today, this Lord's Day, you have influenced people. Are you aware of that? So the first step is becoming aware that influence is inevitable, I think. There's a lot more we could say, and maybe we'll address some of these fears as we go. But knowing this motivates us to become the best kind of influencers we could possibly be. And in discipleship, it all comes down to this. How healthy are we as disciples ourselves? All right, turn in your Bibles over to Luke 39. No, Luke 6, 39. Here it is. 
this is a key principle that we're going to hang everything on today. Again, it's convicting and yet refreshingly simple when it comes to discipling other people. Luke 6.39. Just going to drop you right into the middle of this context. It's Jesus interacting with the people. It says, He told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? It's kind of how we feel in discipleship. <laughs> Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? So there is a danger. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck that is is in your eye, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take out the log out of your own eye, And then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now this is a significant text. Because Jesus, right at the outset, addresses our propensity toward hypocrisy. But it's it's not the fact that we have a log in our eye. It's because we're refusing to admit it. And we're not working on it. We're not trying to take that log out. So we're trying to take out a speck while the two-by-four is swinging, you know, and, and whacking people, and we're trying, but we're trying, to, we're trying to get that one little speck out. You know, it's, it's when I'm trying to, when I'm, you know, if I'm angry at my child, trying to talk to my child about anger. It's like, okay, there is a giant log in my eye that has to be removed before I can deal with that speck in my child's eye. Which means then I have to become an expert log removal, log remover, out of my own eye. So Jesus says if we take that log out, if we repent of our sin, we own it, we get it out, then we're, then something's going to happen. What does he say is going to happen? We're going to see clearly. Yeah. We're going to actually be able to see. Which if we flesh that out a little bit, it means we're going to know what it takes to honestly own our sin, to, uh, to, to do the hard work of repenting of that sin, to learn how to renew our minds in that area, to learn how to not listen to our emotions and what we feel and live by those things, but learn to live by the truth. We're going to learn to, to really yield ourselves to what Christ says and learn to obey Him in that area, not perfectly, but we're, as we begin to do that, that's log removal, by the way, as we begin to remove the log, what's going to happen is a clarity in your vision. Christ says you're going to be able to see clearly now. You're going to be able to take that disciple and say, wow, brother, sister, you're struggling with fear? I know what that's like. I've struggled with fear in this area. And here's how I've taken my heart to the mat. Here's how I've renewed my mind. Here's how I've gotten the log out of my own eye. Let me help you. You're going to know what it takes. So again, Jesus is masterfully efficient as he takes us through the repentance process and then he uses that clarity in the lives of other people alright let me just illustrate that um, I was counseling someone on the fear of man and you know we've been three or four weeks of kind of intensive you know intensive counseling it was pretty, pretty crippling fear and at one point 
you know, this person was making a lot of progress. And I just paused and I said, are you starting to hear uh, in your conversations with others when people are fearing man? And this person said, yes. Yes, I'm hearing it. And I said, do you, do you realize what's happening? As you're learning to repent of this and learning to renew your mind and pursue Christ, you have this new level of discernment now that you did not have before. And so as you're interacting with other people in the body, you can hear it because it happened to you. You got the log out of your own eye, and now you're beginning to see clearly you're becoming a discipler in the making merely by the fact that you're learning how to repent. Now, that's sweet, isn't it? That's very encouraging. That's very doable. So as we're thinking about, oh, wow, I've got to look at my own life. Yes, Cody, it's hard work, but... Every time we go to the mat with our heart, we're gaining clarity. We're gaining, we're gaining new vision. So, last thing here in the, in the introduction, last thing I want to say, because this is all like, I know we've taken a lot of time here, but this is a, a massive setup to where we're going. We're looking for progress and not perfection. We're looking, for, we're looking to make steady progress, and we're, nobody is at, Jesus is not asking us to be perfect before we begin to disciple other people. So that's another lie that crops up in our hearts. We think we have to have arrived at some level. And what we mean by that, if we're honest, is we have to be perfect. We have to stop making mistakes. We have to stop sinning in the Christian life before we're qualified to disciple another person. And that's just a myth. That's not the way this works. So we're looking for progress in the Christian life and not perfection. Clarity, not glorification. All right, so... That raises another massive question, which is where we'll, where we'll go tonight. What areas should I focus on? What areas should I be looking at in my life to know if I'm am, am making progress? To know if I'm growing it? To know, to know if I'm getting the log out of my eye in the right way and moving forward? I don't know exactly how to put it in your outline, but what are the, what are the areas of focus that we want to start uh, or, or grow in to live a life worth following? I've listed three of them. Here, and we'll have to cover these quickly. I've got a lot of, of material on this. There's been a lot of good books on this, too, that have been written, so we're just going to hit the high levels here. So, building on the premise of Luke 6 and, and removing the log, we need to first look at how we handle our own sin. How we handle our own sin. been swimming in first john so just turn on turn on over there first john one familiar passage we'll focus on the application of it so the the first and i think the most important thing to becoming an effective discipler as, as far as like modeling and practicing is being equipped to know how to deal with indwelling sin in your life. How to think about that, what to do with it. The Bible is very clear that we will A, continue to sin as believers, and B, there's a method for it. There's a method for how Christ wants us to handle it. And so I'll say, I'll say this in the negative, and I'll say it in the positive here. So some ways not to handle it, and some ways to handle it, okay? So first, what's involved in, in handling our sin the right way, or, own, or owning our sin... We don't want to deny our sin. Okay, that's very, very important. Look at 1 John 8, 1-8. 1 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Skip down to verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, right? Proverbs 28. So the first thing we can't do is we we definitely do not want to be people who deny our sin. So how might we be tempted to do this? You think, I admit that I'm a sinner, right? Aha. We try to deny our sin all the time as believers. What what might that look like? We might call our sin something else. Give me an example. <laughs> you're right. I'm a strong-willed person. I'm a type A. No, you're actually sinfully rude. <laughs> That's what the Bible would call that. Now let's work on it. All right? Exactly. So we would like to relabel. That's one way we do it. We, re- we relabel our sin. What are some other ways? Minimize. Minimize our sin. Give me an example. I'm going to ask for an example, by the way, so be ready. Preferably from your own life. I didn't kill anybody today. Still, whatever you did, it's still sin, so it doesn't matter. You know? So it's kind of a comparing, kind of self-justifying. Yeah, we'll come back to that. That's good. Yeah, like it wasn't as big as something else. You know, somebody else. Or like, I might have been rude to you, but you were way worse to me. You know what I mean? Like, we're kind of like switching that. Like, blame shifting as we're minimizing it. Yeah, so a form of minimizing, blame shifting. So shifting the blame. Well, I did this because you did this to me. Adam. You know, Eve. Right, so it w- that implies I am good. I would not have done this had you not done this to me. You are the cause, the ultimate cause of my sin. We say it all the time. He made me so angry. Uh, no. How about you chose to respond angrily to that circumstance? That's better. That's actually more biblical. Okay, so that's... That's blame shifting is, a, is another excellent example of how we deny our sin. We begin to shift that blame right over. So don't do that. Um, you, we, were, we were on a path there. We were talking about, what were we talking about? Minimizing our sin, right? Yeah, how about this one? I'm irritated. How about no, you're sinfully angry? Right, my kids are irritating me. No, 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 no. Clay. You are responding in sinful anger. What did I just do? I just minimized that. You know, it's not that big a deal. It is a big deal. This is a huge deal. And so I have to address this as it is. All right? Um, The most common form of denying our sin, you ready for it? Is just ignoring it, right? Just, you just say something to your wife and you just, just keep going. And you just blew that relationship up. You just dropped a bomb. And now you're going to pretend like it didn't even happen. That is, that is gross negligence, you know, on our part. And we've got to address that. We can't just ignore our sin. All right, so on the front end, don't deny your sin. And we, and we are tempted toward this all the time. And we have to help each other, okay? Because our propensity, our old man, we're going to talk about that. Our old man is continually churning out lies. And we're continually trying to evade so in our, as we disciple one another, as we're friends with one another, we have to call each other's bluff on this because it's, it's very easy to do. Every single wife, I'm giving you free reign to call your husband's bluff on this, and if he responds with more blame shifting, you just tell me. 
Okay? We'll, we'll try to address it. Because it starts with the husbands in the home. The husbands have to set the tone for this kind of humility. All right. So don't, don't deny it. Number two, you have to humbly own your sin. 1 John 1, 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what is confession? Was it? Owning up to it. Owning up to it. Admitting it. Calling it what the Bible calls it. Not trying to dress it up. Taking full ownership and responsibility for your sin because it actually did come from you. Jesus says that we sin, our sin, all sin proceeds from the heart. Not their heart, your heart. So anytime you're sinning, that came from you. That came from your heart. And so the only appropriate response is to own it and say, I did it. I'm the man like King David. It's me. I'm not making any excuses. So I'm fully responsible for my sin and for what it has done to others. So we have to humbly own it. Okay, now third, here's one that's implied in the text. Do not self-atone for it. Okay? So now that you're guilty and you've accepted the guilt, now you, you face another set of temptations which is to, to try to, you know you're guilty before God, so now you have to do something about it, you think. How might we be tempted to self-atone? What do I mean by that? Self-atone. Let's define it. Punishing yourself. Okay, punishing ourselves in some way. What do, what do I mean by self-atonement? It wasn't so bad. Okay, yeah, that's another form of minimizing. What is atonement? Trying to make it right. A means of removing our guilt. A means of removing our guilt. Yeah, trying to make it right. And when I put self in front of that, what, what do you think that means? You're the one doing it, not God. You're the one trying to remove your guilt. You're trying to expiate your guilt. Provide a propitiatory sacrifice to God for your guilt. Good. How might we do that practically? What does that sound like and look like in our lives? Yeah. Yes, you just said two great things. Punishing yourself in some way for what you've done or trying to sort of pacify God with something good. You're trying to appease his wrath by doing some form of obedience, right? Yes, that's a very common way that we interact with the Lord when we sin. So we, we what are some, yeah, any, any more examples of that? Saying you'll just do it better next time. Well, next time I won't, I won't do it. But without even repenting, just... Saying, I'll just take it upon yourself to correct your mistakes. That's great. Yes. Taking it upon yourself. I'm going to do it better. Kind of pull myself up on my bootstraps. I'm never going to do this again. You know? How's that work? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. So, um, that's great. Those are all forms of trying to make atonement for it. So, what should we do is, fourth, we should appropriate Christ or just trust Him, trust what He has done in our place. And that's exactly where John goes in the next chapter. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, notice he doesn't repeat himself. Notice he doesn't say, Confess your sin. That's implied. If anyone does sin, what does he say? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. 
So he, John, we're not going to try to be brief here. John wants you, in, when you sin and you have been broken and owned it, he wants you to get your eyes off yourself and to Jesus. He describes him here as the righteous one, which implies he's righteous and you're not, and that's been credited to you. He is our advocate. He stands before the Father advocating for us sinners. And he is the propitiation for our sins. He has absorbed the Father's wrath. He is the, he is the atoning sacrifice, not anything you can do. And so our first task is to own our sin, not self-atone, and look to Jesus for his forgiving grace, his empowering grace, his help, his sacrifice. We didn't even talk about the promises that were attached to verse 9. That he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So forgiveness comes through this confession and looking to Christ. And a cleansing, like a pledge to, to grow you and make you better. To set you apart and, and be, make you useful to Christ. So all of that is, is given to us as we, as we handle our sin the right way. So that's our, our first area of focus is how we handle our sin. Now... Let's think about, just briefly, how this is significant for discipleship. Why do you think this is incredibly important that we begin to nail this, practice this, in our, our day-in and day-out relationship with God and relationship with others? It sets an example. It sets an example. Because, because guess what? We are modeling to our disciples how to repent. We are modeling what humility looks like in real time. That's huge. That's huge. That's great. Good insight. Why else is this significant for our discipling relationships? Transparent, yeah. Yep, it's, it's opening you up to them to, for them to see, okay, wow, this is how this works, yeah. I think it humbles us. And that's what we need. This honest confession cuts against every fiber of pride in our old man. It just it cuts right, right against the grain of the pride in our hearts. And we're going to need humility when it comes to dealing with other people. This also, if you, as you get into the practice of this, it tenderizes you toward Jesus. Because you see how he treats you. He is so tender. He's the, pro- he's the father of the prodigal son running out to meet us every time we repent, every time we come to him. And that kind of interaction with Jesus tenderizes the soul to him. We begin to love him deeply and fear him. There's forgiveness with you. You might be feared, the, the, the Proverbs say. I don't think it's Proverbs, actually. I think it's somewhere else. But we need humility and we need this tenderness and how he treats us will be the foundation for how we treat other people. And then as we're being humbled, as we're being tenderized by Christ, we are being softened in the process to deal with the weaknesses of other people because we know how weak we are. This is the, the bottomless well for patience as we're dealing with other people. This is the bottomless well of, of being able to forgive other people when we are sinned against in the discipling relationships, because we are experiencing it day in and day out from Jesus. There's no other way to, to, to persevere in a discipling relationship. There's no other way to persevere in the church without this. 
without knowing how Jesus treats us and how he loves us. And most importantly, I shouldn't say most importantly, additionally, it helps us understand how to lead other people to repentance when they are in sin. We will be able to hear them blame shift and say, "Uh uh-uh, and pin them to the wall. And we will help them see that you can't have freedom. You can't have this freedom from sin if you are not willing to own it. That is the first step to repentance, is owning our sin. All right. Hammered that one. We've got 15 minutes left to cover the rest of this. So that's the first area that we want to look at in our lives. The first area of focus is how do you handle your sin? The second area is how, how do you pursue mind renewal and growth? So if, we, if you might think about that first stage, that first area of focus, this, this next one kind of builds on that. So Proverbs 28 says, Whoever conceals their transgressions will not prosper, but whoever confesses and what? Forsakes, forsakes them will obtain mercy. So there's a forsaking element that needs to take place. In other words, there's a proactive growth in our repentance that needs to be in play. And so as we are thinking about this for ourselves... We have to know what that process entails. It's biblical sanctification, like how to grow. And then we need to know, once, we, once that becomes clear in our minds and we're practicing that, that becomes the seedbed to help others walk in, in, in Christ's transforming grace as well. Does that make sense? It's kind of a 50,000-foot view on that. All right, so what's involved in this process? Turn over to Ephesians 4. A lot we could say on this, but I'm just trying to alert you to the most significant text. Now, because I hammered out how discipleship has to take place in the church, I'm not even going to touch that right now. Because like the church is like the incubator for our growth. Let me just say that. Okay? The church is the incubator for our growth, meaning truth comes to us. We're fundamentally, our old natures are fundamentally deceived. We're going to see that. So the truth has to come from outside of us, to us. And it does that in and through the church. So that's just assumed right now in what I'm saying. So we've got to be in, in the church, hearing the truth, interacting with other believers. Now, there's an individual responsibility that we have when it comes to our growth. And I just would summarize this as sort of this mind renewal process. At the end of, uh, about midway through Ephesians 4. So Paul says, we'll just read it together. Paul says, assuming verse... 22, we'll pick it up in verse 21. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, number one, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And number two, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And number three, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. All right, so what's involved in this mind renewal process? There's, there's three things here. As you can see, verses 22, 23, and 24. Paul describes him as putting off the old self and his lies. He describes it next as learning to renew your mind with the truth because now that you're in Christ, you have a new capacity that you did not have before. You were completely dead and enslaved to lies before, but now you have the Holy Spirit. Now you've been, now you've been made alive by Christ, and you have a new capacity to know the truth and to believe it. 
which is there now that you didn't have before. And then finally, you're learning to live faithfully in all of life. You're learning to put on the new self that Christ has already obtained for you, meaning you're learning to now live out this new identity in real time. And then Ephesians goes on to spell out what that looks like in the rest of Ephesians um, 4 and 5. So let's just point out a few very important observations about this text that you need to know. All right, first, you have an old self. So, do we agree? Yep. And you are called here to put it off, which means he's always or she's always lurking around. All right, and it's continually. You have to continually put it off. And this old self is the old Adamic nature that we inherited in Adam. That's our default setting. We come out of the womb with him or her. And in conversion, that power is broken. We've given, we're given this new self, this new identity, this new capacity, but we still have this old self that's, that's constantly vying for our attention and honestly is just full of propaganda. It's the best way to put it. Full of propaganda. Full of lies. That's what he says here. He says this old self, notice how he describes it, which belongs to your former manner of life. That's the old you. And this old self is thoroughly corrupt through, here's the key operative phrase, deceitful desires. Which we're just going to call the desires of Deceit. Ah. Okay. Simple rule. All right. The desires of deceit. That would be a literal way to, to, to phrase that out. So what he's saying here, the ESV translates this as deceitful desires, as though the desires themselves are deceiving us, which you could go over to James. That's definitely true. But what he's saying here is that we have desires, and these desires corrupt us. Okay? We're corrupted, or have corrupted us, through these desires. So these are our wants, our cravings. And these desires are of deceit, meaning they, they spring up out of deceit. So we could say it backwards. We are deceived in our old natures. Old Adam, old you, is deceived. And because you are deceived... Now you crave, you want, you have these desires for evil. So let's think Eve. Eve was told what was up in Genesis 2 and 3. And she starts interacting with the serpent. The serpent deceives her. Because she now is deceived, she makes a wrong assessment of the tree in her deception So she sees this tree of of the knowledge of good and evil, which brings death, as good. That's what the text says in Genesis 3. She assesses the tree as good, even though it's going to bring death. So that's clearly showing she's deceived. And now she craves it. It says it's desired. She wants it. There's these desires springing up for this evil thing. And then she acts on that desire. She takes it, and it's corrupted. So do you see the process? Deception, craving, corruption. And you have that deceived old man, woman, in your heart that's churning out these evil desires that leads to corruption. 
And Paul says you've got to put that off. So the reason I'm drawing that out is because we typically think when we hear the word put off, a behavior. Right? Like, put off looking at porn. It's like, yes, amen, put that off. But looking at porn comes from a craving. Because we think that's good for us. You see? So to put off the old man, so we've got to put all that off. We have to learn to think differently. We have to learn to not trust what we feel because we have an old man or woman operative inside of us that's churning out these evil desires. And we have to learn to yield our wills to God through His Word. So that is, we have to put that off, that whole thing. Notice, he doesn't say just like put off one little thing. He says put this whole, whole edemic nature off you. The whole thing, including how you think, what you feel, and what you do. All that's got to go. Next, he says, what is put in its place. You have to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So that's pretty straightforward. What he's saying here is when we're deceived, the only solution to that is the truth. The words of Christ. You will know the truth, John 8, and the truth will what? Set you free. Set you free. Satan's game, his propaganda game, is to enslave us, to corrupt us, and to destroy us. And Christ's game with the truth is not a game. His mission is to set his people free and produce fruitful lives through the truth. And so he says, we have to renew our minds. It starts in our thinking... It starts in our thinking. We have to think the right way about what is true. It's renewing of the mind. And then he says, put on this new self that's already been created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Or literally, in righteousness and holiness from the truth. It's the opposite of this phrase, desires of deceit, righteousness and holiness of the truth. So meaning, the truth produces the righteousness and holiness, and we've got to put that on. So he's saying the, the, exact, the exact contrast of what he said here. Which means then that you have to learn to yield your will to Jesus when you don't want to because of the truth. See, we typically think in sanctification, if I can just, if I can just get some magic bullet, then my desires are going to change and I'm going to want to do this thing. And that's great when that happens. But that sort of hijacks this whole process that I, I'm deceived, and so I'm going to start cra- I'm going to be craving these evil things, and that's going to lead to these desires. So what has to happen is I have to renew my mind with the truth, and if my desires change, great. But even if they don't, they're still, they're still churning out of this deception. And so the way I slay that is I yield my will to Jesus in this moment. And so then we need to learn to live faithfully like I'm putting it here on this phrase, in all areas of life. Now, I'm not talking about perfection. Don't hear me say that. What I mean then is that the renewed mind and the new man has implications for every area of your life. Paul's going to go on to tell us it has implications for how we interact with each other in the church. In Ephesians 4 and halfway through Ephesians 5. 
He's going to say it has implications for how we interact with each other in the family. Husbands and wives, children and parents. He's going to go in to say it has implications for how we interact in, for lack of a better word, the workplace. Slaves and masters, you know, in our day, bosses, employees. So it has implications in all areas of life. So it's game on, right? There's a lot of, of glorious work to be done in our lives as we take on this new mind, this new mind of Christ, and learn to see it fleshed out in, in all the areas of life. Does that make sense? <laughs> Before I move forward? The, the, don't worry, the third point is very self-explanatory. You can study that on your own. All right? Let's, we're going to camp here. We're going to end here. Take out your other sheet. So you say, well, that's great, Clay. That's very helpful. But where do I start? How do I start exercising my faith muscles in this large process? I'm glad you asked. I asked for you. So it's pretty easy. Find, think about, in your mind right now, one area of your life it's burning down. Is that fair? Got any patterns of anxiety? About, are you depressed? Um, got patterns of anger? So find, find an area in your life that you're thinking, okay, wow, if the Lord could just, if he would just change this one thing, whew, in my growth, man, that'd be awesome. That area. You got it? Now, look at your sheet. Start establishing when and how that happens. When do you fall? Let's, let's take anger. Let's say it's just anger, for example. When, what are the patterns? The first step in this, I don't even have a sheet. What are the, the first step is what I'm calling isolating the circumstances. Do this for your own life, okay? You want to look at what were the circumstances? What, what was happening? How was I tempted? What did I, how did I respond to it? What were the results of what I did? So... The husband who come home, comes home from work and he has this colossal argument with his wife every day right when he comes home from work. It's like, okay, well, I'm noticing I have an anger problem and it's right here. I'm isolating this moment. It's happening right now at these points. All right, what's happening? Write that down. Now, there's anger, right? Sinful anger. Would we agree that that is wrong? Okay, where does that come from according to this? The old who? The old Edemic nature. Okay, so there's a corruption. Ding, ding, ding. Guess what that just shows us? There's some deceived desires churning inside of us. So next step on your chart, reflect on that. What were you saying to yourself in those moments? On the drive to drive home. Man, that day was rough. Gosh, I can't believe so-and-so did X, Y, and Z. Man, I'm just excited to get home and like... Just chill and eat and watch that game or whatever it is. You're starting to rehearse things to yourself in that moment. What were you saying before in your heart? What were you saying after you blew up at your wife in that moment? What was the things that you, how, what, how did that go? What did you say afterwards? Because I guarantee you it is full of the old man. The old desires that are churning up in you. Then guess what you need to do? You're deceived, okay? 
So you need to start taking those thoughts captive and evaluating everything you say. I'll just write them out right here in this column. Write out exactly what you're saying. And I, trust me, I do this for myself. It's not pretty. This is tough. Okay? Just humble yourself and write out everything you're saying because immediately you start seeing, wow, this is bad. Okay? Then take the next step, and this is the Ephesians uh, 4.23, renewal of the spirit of your minds. Evaluate what you're saying to yourself with the truth. What would the scriptures say in that moment? Wow, the scriptures would actually say, I'm, I'm anxious about this, about this responsibility at work about how this person treated me, that they sinned against me, and I'm now I'm resenting them because I haven't actually whew, I haven't actually forgiven that person. So now I'm angry about that because I'm coming home already in my heart. So I'm nursing that. So I'm already in sin because I'm not dealing with that. And I'm coming home and I'm anxious about that responsibility and said, wow, and then I, I, I enter in, and I'm now I've got all these rights. I'm thinking I deserve a hot meal. I deserve my kids to be quiet and calm. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve what? No, you don't. That is wrong. You deserve hell. If we want to talk about rights, okay? You're coming home not to be served, but to be a servant of all. Like, whoa, 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 you are way out in left field here, Clay. So as I'm thinking this through, I'm, I'm starting to combat what I was saying in my heart with the truth. While you're thinking that, that, that Christ is not with you in this moment, that you have no reserves left to give to your family, to your kids, to your wife, to your... you got nothing left in the tank. Is Christ with you in this moment? Am I with you? Yes. Wow, you are with me. Can I produce fruit through your weakness? Yes, you can. So then there's wind. There's, there's wind in my sails, right? There's encouragement that's coming in. As I'm meditating on the truth, meditating on Christ's presence with me, what He would desire of me in this moment. And now, key step... If I really believe that, like seriously believe that, how would I act in that moment? Plan that out. I'm going to come home. I'm going to immediately grab the kids, take them downstairs, get them out of mom's hair so she can finish dinner. You know? I'm going to come in. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to interact with my wife and see how her day was. Give me. The, I'm going to ask for the download. I'm not going to wait on her to give it to me. You know, start thinking, what would obedience look like if I really believed the truth in this moment? And when you get home that day, and the last thing you want to do is ask your wife how she's doing, you ask your wife how she's doing. Because that kills the evil craving. And we have to kill it. Because it ain't going to die any other way. Okay? It has to be killed. And the day in, day out killing of that old man is how we grow. That's how we grow. And as we do that, day in and day out, guess what's happening? For discipleship. Any thoughts? You're becoming discerning. You are becoming mature. You are going to be able to see, talk to that, hus- that new husband that's having conflicts with his wife, you're going to be able to help him triage those circumstances and say, when's the, when's, the, when's the old man rearing his head? Let's talk through that. Okay, for the next three weeks, I want you to write down every time this happens. All right, now, what were you saying to yourself? That's not that hard. What were you saying to yourself? Like, okay, get that out on paper. All right, now let, let's think that through with Scripture. Okay, let me tell you which three truths are very precious to me in that when I had to go through that same thing. Here they are. Bam, bam, bam. All right, I'm going to help you work through those. Okay, man, hey, dude, if you believe this, 
Let's, let's, let's brainstorm here. How might you serve your wife and your family when you, when you get home? You have, you have the Ephesians 4 model at your fingertips as you confront yourself and learn to grow in this way as Christ helps you do that. Now, let me say one more thing here. I know we're packing it in tonight. There's only one problem with what I just told you. It's not really a problem. When you are deceived, how good are you at recognizing your deceptions? <laughs> They're pretty bad. Which is why the previous part of Ephesians 4 is in there about the church. So if you're trying to disciple other people, you need discipling. You need people to help you triage these things, learn in the areas that your life is currently burning down so that you can gain clarity so that you can go in and help other people. This is just part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. Pastor, We do this for each other as pastors. I do this with some of you guys. I will lay it all out there. Help, help me think this through. Help me reflect on my heart. Help me see how am I deceived in this area. And you've got a lot of people in this church who are good at this and can help you work through the issues. So that means we need to seek this out for ourselves from others. We're not, we're not needy. This is part of what the body does for one another. Because, why do we need to do that? Because it's very hard to discern when we're deceived. And that's obviously very significant for discipleship. Now, if all this is new to you, or it's like, I got about 10% of that, you know, what you just said. We just, we hit that really fast, really hard. When we go through the teaching portion of what a discipler does, how a discipler teaches, this is basically, we're going to review this again. And we're going to practice it. We're going to work at this because this is crucial. This is the heart of discipleship. So I just want to lay this out for you to say you need to be practicing these things. You need to be proactive in renewing your mind in the specifics of your life for growth so that you can have clarity. And the last thing here on your list is the last area to look at is how you view trials. How you view trials. That's the third area of focus. We're not going to cover that. Give you the thumbnail sketch. Trials, wish it weren't this way, but it is. Trials are one of God's choice tools in our lives to conform us to Christ. To expose our old man. To get things out in the open. To help us see stuff. To help us see clearly. To teach us truths. To help us mature in fruitfulness that's that's part of the process so if you don't understand that a it's going to go really poorly in your in your christian life you're going to be constantly resenting the lord tempted to resent him and b you are not going to know what to do with someone else who is in the depths of suffering because god's going to change try to god's going to be using trials to transform them as well so you need to see clearly in that area. So I've given you some truths there as a start um, that you can see and study. And obviously that's very significant for discipleship. So we're going to end here. I'm already five minutes over. Um, if, you wanna, if you don't have kids and you want to stay around, you can chat. If you do have kids, go get them. All right. Thank you, guys. You're dismissed.